welcome to I Wish I Knew, a Twitter research podcast. Each episode, you'll hear from different researchers at Twitter as we explore why research matters and celebrate the people and culture surrounding the work. Research is the spark that ignites countless insights, ideas, and solutions. It connects us to the humanity on the platform in deeply empathetic and inspiring ways, and it helps us better serve the public conversation. So we hope you'll join along and tweet us your questions at Twitter Research. Welcome to this episode of I Wish I Knew, a Twitter research podcast. I'm Robin, and my pronouns are she, her. I'm a biracial woman of color wearing black cat-eye glasses and a summer dress. I'm a research manager on the health research team here at Twitter, and I'm joined by my fellow colleague, Svetlana. Hey, y'all. Super excited to be here. My name is Svetlana Pinkina. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm a quantitative researcher here at Twitter. So in this episode, we'll be talking about asking the right questions, specifically what it means to ask a good research question from the perspectives of qualitative and quantitative research. Before we start, let's dive a bit deeper into where we come from and what we do here at Twitter. Yeah, so I can start. I came to Twitter from a career in social science research and international development. This is actually my first ever job in tech. Prior to this, I worked with governments and nonprofits to help them understand and measure the impact of their programs. And then Twitter came along and presented me with this amazing opportunity to apply my experience in behavioral economics and measurement to the social media space. So here I am. And at Twitter, I use quantitative methods to understand some foundational questions about our users, like who they are, why they come to Twitter, what challenges they face on the platform. And I also do a lot of research about consumer privacy, which is a really hot topic nowadays. Twitter is also my first job in tech. Prior to Twitter, I spent time at Condé Nast trying to figure out how to make print brands more relevant to digital audiences. And before that, I was with a research vendor trying to understand how to get people to buy DVDs or Blu-rays. And here at Twitter, I'm on the health research team, and I seek to understand how to improve safety and privacy controls on Twitter so users feel safer while using the platform. In order to understand how to tackle these big customer questions, we need to have an understanding of quantitative and qualitative research methods first. So let's start by talking about what qual and quant research is, how they are different, and in many ways, how they are very similar. I often hear qual research talked about as though it's this one big thing, but I've seen so many different qualitative methodologies that I think it's important to call out how varied this type of research can be. Yeah, qualitative research is definitely not a monolith. You have focus groups, you have paired interviews, IDIs, ethnography, every version under the sun. So let's talk a little bit about each of these different versions of qualitative research. So with focus groups, that's I think what many people think of when you say qualitative research. You think of the focus group with eight people in a room behind the double-sided glass, talking or arguing, maybe doing some different creative things. And yes, that's pretty much what focus groups are. It's really just getting together a group of people to talk about a different topic and understand their behaviors and their mindsets related to it. There's also paired interviews or what you might call friendship pairs, where one moderator talks to two people and really gets them to discuss a topic together, which can really lead to really rich and deep insights. There's also in-depth interviews or IDIs, where it's a one-on-one conversation between a moderator and a participant. 
And then there's also ethnography or sort of more observational research where a researcher might actually shadow someone in their day-to-day lives or in their in their workplace to understand how they actually go about their day and, and who they talk to and what they do and why. It's really cool to hear about all the different types. And I think that it's also important to note that surveys also come in different forms and different flavors. They can be different based on the way in which they're fielded. So, for example, online or in person, they can be different based on the population that they cover. So think of a census, which aims to survey everybody, versus political polling, which tries to cover a representative sample of voters. And there are surveys that are deployed just once for what we call a cross-sectional study or ones that are repeated over time and help us look at trends. So lots of things to choose from depending on the objectives of the research. I often get asked about whether to do qual or quant research and in what, which order. What's your take, Svet? It's a good question. And unfortunately, there's no single right answer. It's the it depends answer, right, which we all love. For me personally, it's hard to write a survey without having some knowledge about the space. And qual methods are really great for exploratory work. So in some cases, I'd love to do quant after doing qual. However, in other cases, it's useful to do quant first to get kind of an overall descriptive understanding of the population. So maybe their demographics, their behaviors or their habits before doing a qualitative deep dive into any particular segment that's really interesting. I totally agree. Some of the most powerful studies actually combine qual and quant together. And the ordering, of course, always depends on the situation. You're exactly right. It depends is one of our standard research refrains and is always true. Quant is really there to have a better understanding of how many people will do something or think something or believe or want. And then qual is really great for adding color, as we say. So numbers are great to show in a report or presentation, but really having people's quotes or videos of them telling their own stories can make the insights much more memorable and really brings the customer to life. So what are some of the things that you think about when writing up a discussion guide or structuring a conversation with a research participant? How do you make sure that it flows? That's a great question. So first off, I really I list out all of my top questions that I want to have answered. And then I really put myself in participants or customers' shoes and think about the best way for them to answer each of these questions. And also really understand like what are the questions in between to get us from A to B or a to Z, if you will. So generally, it's it's smart to start broad and then go a little bit more narrow. So really, at the beginning, it's important to get participants feeling comfortable with talking with me or, or the researcher who's moderating, and then get them in, in the right mindset before you dig into the crux of the matter. So it's great to start out with sort of icebreakers, having the participants talk about themselves, where they live, what their family's like, what they do for fun, what are their favorite shows on TV. And then start getting into, for Twitter specifically, how they use social media, for instance, and then sort of digging deeper and deeper into the most important topics. I agree. I think framing is really key. It's the same for survey work, right? So you have to think about framing both in terms of how the survey is structured and then also how every single question is worded. So a common mistake that I see a lot is what we call a leading question. For example, you know, how easy was it for you to find this feature, right? We're already framing around this idea that it's easy. Or also a double-barreled question when you're actually asking two different things in one question and that makes it really difficult to answer. 
And then also we have to be mindful about how we order the questions one after the other, because with every single question, we impact the respondent's frame of mind. So it's important to remember that one question may prime the respondent to answer the next one in a certain way. Yeah, so ordering and flow are definitely very important. And as are, you know, establishing trust and openness before really getting into topics, especially sensitive topics. So as I I spoke about really getting into the icebreakers at the beginning to establish that connection and that conversation and, and showing customers and participants that there are no wrong answers. Researchers are really there to just understand them, their experiences, and not to judge them. And By establishing that trust, you're really able to get into these more deep and meaningful conversations. Yeah. And when it comes to sensitive topics, like one thing that we really, really have to think about and be mindful of is is privacy. It might be an easy thing for us to forget about, but data privacy is a right. And we have to be extra clear and extra transparent about how we collect data, what we do with it, and then the protections that we have in place for it. And like I said, this goes doubly for sensitive topics. And what we consider sensitive data isn't just based on our judgment. There are privacy regulations, like maybe you've heard of GDPR, that's a big one, that are in place that spell out what data is considered sensitive and what data requires additional protections. So now let's really talk about how to keep people engaged, whether that's in surveys or in one-on-one interviews. It's really important to keep people engaged throughout a conversation. So what do you do to keep people engaged in a survey? Yeah, that's a really good question. One thing that I always try to do is help people understand upfront about why what they're saying matters and how it's going to impact decisions down the line. And this kind of thinking also helps me write good survey questions. You know, make sure that I'm not just collecting data for fun, but there are actionable insights to be captured from every response option. And then the other really easy answer is when it comes to engagement, don't make it long. I've seen so many long surveys that take like hours to do. And that's just, that's hard. You know, you really got to make sure that things are easy to read, that they're not cognitively taxing. You know, taking a survey shouldn't be like doing your homework or doing your taxes. And one easy test that I do is essentially asking myself, like, would my mom be able to understand and be able to answer the survey? And if not, then I should probably go back and revise. And keeping people engaged in surveys is is so important. I feel like we're always getting bombarded with surveys, whether that's through email or on websites. It's always, do you have five minutes to tell me what you think about your shopping experience? So making sure that the surveys themselves are engaging is definitely key to getting those great insights. What do you do in qualitative work? How do you keep people engaged? Again, I think I think it really always comes down to just be a human, like feed them, give them food. Everyone loves food, whether that's, you know, the participants participating in the focus group or the IDIs, or if that's the people in the back room in the, the pre-COVID days where we were able to bring people into a focus group setting or an office space, being able to give people a little bit of something to kind of munch on and mull over while they're there. It's always good. You don't want anyone to be hangry. And of course, at least for me, M&Ms are always a favorite for the back room. It's always good to have something to just kind of snack on and, and think about how people do something. Additionally, I always would say, you know, make sure the questions are easy to understand and, and don't use any sort of jargon or research speak. So just like you said, you know, make sure that your mom can understand it. 
Same goes for any type of qualitative work. There shouldn't be any kind of processing or thinking about the question in order to answer the question. The question should be very easy to understand. And then so they can think about really and spend their time on their answer versus understanding what it is that we're trying to ask. And of course, for us on the back end, we need to make sure, like you said, no double barred questions, make sure that people that we're getting the answers that we seek and that they can answer in the right way. We don't want to be talking about apples and they're talking about oranges, for instance. Then really just keeping in mind that it's a conversation. Remember to have fun, to be curious, and give people the space to share. Again, there's always no right or wrong answers is what we always tell our participants. And that is very true, unless they get off on a real tangent and then maybe there is a wrong answer. But for the most part, it really should just be a conversation where there's no judgment and any answer can be the right thing. So you mentioned tangent, and I'm curious, like, how do you keep people on track when you're having these conversations that are, you know, big and open-ended? That is a good question. And sometimes off track really yields valuable insights. You want to give people the space to talk, and sometimes they start rambling, and they they actually bring up things that you hadn't considered. So it's it's a really important to actually what we call, you know, probe in those areas and get them to explain further. And then it actually can be very valuable to bring up things that, you know, the researcher themselves had never considered or thought about as being, you know, related to the questions at hand. But of course, if they are indeed rambling and it's maybe not of the highest value, it's always good to just acknowledge, you know, what people have said and show them that you're listening. And then also just very gently bring them back on track by reframing the question or else moving on to the next topic and just, you know, saying, I hear you. Thank you for sharing. And then sort of closing out and and moving on. So let's also talk about how to pressure test the survey. What goes into that? Yeah, so this is a really cool space where qual and quant overlap. One thing that's really important to do before launching a survey, particularly a survey about sensitive or nuanced topics, is what we call cognitive testing. So it's basically doing qualitative research on the survey itself, understanding how do people interpret the question? Is the intent of the question understood? Do the response options make sense? And you know, are they inclusive of all the different possibilities? And it's really important to do this type of legwork before launching the survey, because I've definitely been in situations where I'm analyzing the data and I'm thinking, wait, but how was this question actually interpreted? Like, what does it really mean? And at that point, you already have the data and it's kind of too late. Can you talk a little bit more about the inclusivity of answer options? Because that's really top of mind. Yeah. So I can give you one example of a time that I actually messed this up. I launched a really big survey at Twitter. It was multi-market. It was a big deal for our stakeholders. Everybody was super excited about it, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the questions was about languages that people know or speak. And because of, you know, the time crunch, I didn't really get a chance to pilot it and review all of the open-ended response options. So we usually have like the multiple choice options and then an other category where people can write in anything that's missing. And when I was analyzing the data, I realized that many people across many different countries wrote in sign language. And sign language wasn't one of the options that was listed for the language. And that was, you know, clearly an oversight on my part because the question wasn't inclusive or the answer options weren't inclusive of all of the different ways that people communicate. So that's something that I wish I had known before I had actually launched it, or at least I had thought about before I had launched it. 
In qualitative research, it's also really important to have a mix of representation within the groups and and between groups and making sure that we have a good mix of different perspectives when we're talking to people. But even so, it's also very important to create a safe space within focus groups or paired groups and making sure that people feel comfortable speaking up and, and not being judged. So for instance, you know, thinking about you know, a focus group, you may not want to have millennials and boomers in one room because they may not have the same sort of beliefs or they may start in fact fighting about something, you know, depending on what topic you're you're talking about. So say you're talking about saving for a house, millennials and boomers may have different perspectives about how possible that is. Right, because we we buy too much avocado toast, right? Did I just date myself yes. as a millennial? <laughs> I think I just yes, dated exactly. myself as a millennial. <laughs> and it's also important to really just think about cultural norms. For instance, in some countries, women participants would only be interviewed by other women. They would never, you know, be interviewed by a man, or they would be hesitant to share their experiences to a man, for instance. For sure. And you talked about cultural norms and, you know, like different countries. I think it's also really important to point out how when we survey in other countries, it does become a little bit more tricky. And oftentimes just translating a survey is not enough. The translation has to be locally relevant rather than just literal. And then there's other things that we have to think about in different cultures, like how different cultures interpret survey scales differently. You know, they might be more or less likely to select the endpoints of a scale. And so we have to be really mindful about that when we do the analysis of the data. And so speaking of analysis, I've worked with qualitative data before. And because I'm a numbers person, I found it really, really challenging. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach analyzing qualitative data? Yeah, so it kind of goes back to, it always goes back to the questions, first of all. And then we also think about what are the most important types of participants who we need to talk to. And I guess, what is the different mix of participants? But generally with qual research, you really only need about six to eight people. You don't need 30 people. This is a constant place of education because when you think about quant, you think about thousands of people, but really with qual, you only need really less than 10, again, between six and eight people to really start understanding themes of what's going on and how people are using something and potential pain points. And with qual, you have to remember, it's not meant to be representative. You're really just looking for a general understanding of how people see something. But if you want representativeness, that's where you go to quant research. Yeah, representativeness and generalizability are things that we talk about a lot when we do quant research and analysis. And kind of like to your point, one pitfall that I've noticed a lot is that people tend to equate large samples with being necessarily representative. And that's not necessarily the case. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. In order to make sure that your findings are truly representative of a population, you really need to think about how you choose your sample and how you use weighting methodologies that adjust for things like sampling probabilities and non-response bias. And this stuff is really important to make sure that we're not taking the opinions of a non-representative group of individuals and using them to represent the view of an entire population. So what do you think about when analyzing quantitative data? Assuming you have your representative sample and a really rich data set, what do you think about when analyzing your data for insights? So 
In my academic days, we used to do this thing called a pre-analysis plan before launching a study. And it basically specified which analytical techniques we will use with whatever data we're collecting to get our conclusions. And so this was used as a way to prevent what we call p-hacking or significance chasing, where you basically run a bunch of t-tests or regressions or whatever, and you find the one that's significant and you call that an insight. And the thing is that we humans have this tendency to look for patterns in the data that confirm our biases and preconceived notions. And so that's really easy to do when you're like looking for that result. And so it's really important to be careful about that. So having an idea of how we want to analyze the data before even starting the data collection really helps with that. So having talked about all these things, you know, what are your tips or best practices for being good at asking questions? Really empathy. It always comes back to empathy. And by empathy, I mean being able to take the role of others and being able to make people feel comfortable, being conscious of how other people might approach a situation given their different identities and really just giving them the space to be themselves and, you know, hopefully feel heard and seen and not judged. I think the, the empathy is really just the key and it shows up in all, in many different aspects. Yeah, totally. I think with quantitative research too, empathy is really at the core of it all. There's also, you know, really tactical things that we need to think about, like making sure that people aren't feeling overwhelmed by a million survey grids or blocks of text. And my advice to anybody that's starting out in this is take your own survey. We do not do enough of that as researchers. Or, you know, like having, like take, have your friends take your survey and you're going to be surprised by how many of your own questions that you think are really smart, you actually can't really answer and they don't make a lot of sense. And then I really, truly can't overstate the importance of privacy enough. I've done a bunch of research about perceptions of privacy among, you know, Twitter users, general social media users. And I found that it's something that people both really care about and are also totally perplexed by. So it's really important to help people understand how their data is used and how it's protected. Asking questions is an art and a science. Art requires empathy and wanting to understand and connect with people, but there's also a science to how the questions and their ordering needs to be crafted in order to ensure that you're getting unbiased answers and real answers to, to the questions. Making sure that language is conversational. Ultimately, we are talking to people about what they do and think, so it's important for Qual and Quant to remember you know, all of these things. As always, before we close out this episode, we'd like to answer a question we've received from our listeners at Twitter Research. Today's question is, what have you learned the hard way about qual and quant? Yeah, so I think one thing that I've definitely learned the hard way is that there's no shortcut to piloting or testing the survey instrument. Even if you're trying to move fast, it's still super important to test something before it goes live to make sure that there are no glaring holes. And I'll give an example of yet another time that I've messed this up. So I launched a survey and because I was trying to move super fast, of course, I was like copying and pasting stuff. And of course, I copied and pasted something incorrectly. And basically, I had a question where all of the answer options were essentially on a scale of strongly dislike to strongly dislike. So it was all about disliking. And this was about a feature on Twitter. And of course, you're going to have that one snarky respondent that's going to pick it up, post it on Twitter 
with a tagline of like, wow, tell me how you really feel about this feature. And that was super What meme or gif did they use? (laughs) (laughs) Did they have a SpongeBob gif? I'm sure. Oh, God. Maybe. I don't know. I like I blocked this out of my head. But I do remember that like it was this really clear signal that we work on a social media platform. Things can go viral and people can embarrass you. So it's super, super important to sweat the details. That's such a funny story. And yeah, way to get called out on Twitter about Twitter. Yeah. Ouch. For me, I feel like I have so many different stories. I think for qualitative, you know, with interviews, there are so many things that you can do wrong, but there's also so many things that you can do right. And really something that's gone wrong is making people feel like you're not listening to them or that you're distracted or that they're telling you the wrong answers is always a way to sort of get them to clam up and and not actually share their actual experiences. So really just making sure, I just think back to my early days of interviewing, maybe I didn't have the most serene look on my face as I was interviewing or wasn't taking notes or maybe I was asking probing questions that kind of felt like it was putting people in a corner. So they really tried to tell me what I wanted to hear versus just telling me what they actually experienced. I think that's, you know, something that you have to learn the hard way sometimes is just understanding how to show empathy. How can you show people that you're not judging them and, and really make them open up very quickly So that kind of all comes back to, you know, asking those opening questions, making sure that you have this friendly demeanor and, you know, encouraging them to really just start talking to you and and showing that you're listening. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that story. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of I Wish I Knew. Uh, I was super fun talking about the art and the science of asking questions, whether they're quantitative or qualitative. We've realized that it really does just come down to empathy and inclusivity and of course, privacy. So reach out to us at Robin Hightower and at MS Pumkina or join the conversation and tweet us any questions at Twitter Research to have them answered in future episodes. We're going to have new episodes coming out soon. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out. Thanks, y'all. Thanks. Bye. Bye.